8th September 2014. All eyes are on the World Climate Summit in New York. We're all wondering what lies ahead. We are sending a very powerful signal to all the people of the planet that it is time to become the forceful voice to change the minds of the politicians and the corporations. Are you ready? Among the defining issues of our time are deforestation, land use and food production. We need a mobilisation of people everywhere. We're not on course for a safe world. This is about humanity. It's a moral issue, it's a political issue, it's a human rights issue, it's a leadership issue. The reason I'm here is palm oil. And whether we know about it or not, palm oil is in all our lives. You go into a grocery store in the United States or Europe, roughly half the packaged goods in the grocery store contain one, one version of palm oil or another. So it is extraordinarily ubiquitous. You know, if you shop in a grocery store, you probably have palm oil in most rooms of your, of your house. Uh, it's found in all kinds of food, snack foods, cookies, crackers, ice cream, frozen food, chocolate all kinds of things. Um, but then it's also found in detergents and other cleaning supplies. It's found in cosmetics like lipstick. Uh, so it's, it's, it's hyperabundant. That's campaigner Laurel Sutherland from Rainforest Action Network. You know, palm oil has a couple of qualities that make it very favorable. It's, it's, a, it's a fat that's actually it's one of the rare fats that's solid at room temperature. So it gives long shelf life to products and it's very great for a coating that won't melt. Um, and so, especially in the United States, about a decade ago, when uh, it was mandated that trans fats be labeled on products, uh, many companies didn't want to have that toxic label on their, on their packaging, and so they voluntarily made the switch to palm oil. The reason we're not so familiar with palm oil as a food ingredient in Ireland is because it's not required to appear on food labels in the EU. Demand for palm oil is growing so fast and there's so much money to be made, it's a big business causing big problems. It also is uh, causing widespread human rights uh, abuses, um, and those abuses take many forms. Uh, these companies get concessions from the government, often through corrupt uh, sort of crony uh, you know, connections, and many times the companies use very dark tactics to come in. They'll sometimes come in and divide communities, give them false promises. Sometimes they will pay off uh, leaders to get them to sign forms or um, lead them to believe that they're going to become wealthy off of this. And, and I'm heading to Honduras in Central America, a small country that's producing huge quantities of palm oil. I've landed in the capital, Tegucigalpa, to meet Offaly woman Jennifer Cornally. Honduras uh, is located in Central America, which is that strip there running from, uh, say, linking the United States, uh, Mexico and Southern America. Um, it's north of Nicaragua, south of Guatemala and El Salvador. Jennifer is country director for Trocra in Honduras. Um, it has been known as the Banana Republic because um, in the past it and, and continues to be a major export of bananas. Um, overall it's about the size of Ireland I would say Honduras is um, but it has a population of 7 million at the moment and the population is rapidly increasing. 
There has been a political struggle around land in Honduras over the past 50 years. Trocra has helped small farmers in their struggle to hold on to land against business interests intent on expanding their palm oil plantations, which already cover about 15% of the country. Uh, I suppose to, to start, it's important to note about Honduras as a high levels of inequality in the country and uh, inequality in access to land and other resources and to wealth in general, where you have... Um, maybe 8 to 9% of people within the country owning up to 80% or 85% of uh, arable land and um, millions of um, small-scale farmers um, was trying to eke out a living on land that is not suitable for agricultural production or who are completely landless. The story of the land conflict reaches back to the 1960s when land to grow palm oil was distributed to farmers' co-ops in much the same way as happened with land in Ireland. But in the early 1990s, the rules were changed. That allowed agribusiness and wealthy landowners to increase their holdings, often using dark tactics, in a country where corruption is endemic and legal title can be difficult to establish and maintain. One of those who has been there since the very start is Wilfredo Paz. He's a member of Congress in Honduras. Bueno, los orígenes del conflicto en el Aguán están referidos a la tendencia en América Latina de The origins of the conflict in the Aguán are linked to the trend in Latin America from the 1990s onwards towards the concentration of land by large landowners. In the case of Honduras, there's been no real progress on the agrarian reform that began back in 1962. Peasants have been fighting for agrarian reform, and up to today, they haven't been able to make any progress to that effect. There has been a process of displacement from the land. The victims who suffered the most were the women and children. It might seem like a simple dispute over land ownership, but the tactics used to secure the plantations have had tragic consequences. Between 2008 and 2013, a total of 129 people um, were killed or forcibly disappeared and are assumed to be dead um, as a result of the, the, the conflict in the region. I'm heading to the valley in the northeast of Honduras that's ideal for growing palm. That's where the conflict is centred. Okay, let's go. As we get ready for the eight-hour drive across country, I notice the morning newspaper on the office desk. Well, one of the main articles there is in relation to the war between gangs. Uh, the main photo on the front page, which is quite typical in Honduras, unfortunately, is a picture of two people dead, two young men dead, uh, one with his arms tied behind his back, with a black bag over his head, um, and the other one uh, lying on his back. And the headline is uh, War Between Gangs, or Gang War. Honduras has a reputation for violence. In 2012, the homicide rate was 100 times that of Ireland. That's in a country of about 7 million. Most of the killings are drugs-related. Almost half of the cocaine smuggled into the United States now comes through Honduras. It seems where there's money, there's murder.
Palm grows best within 10 degrees of the equator, so the Aguan region of Honduras is ideal. Out here, the money really does grow on trees. It's a strange little fruit, hard shell, kind of oval shaped, and the colour yellow, orange, red, maroony, winey colour. Quite hard as well. Very isn't hard, it? yeah. yeah. It's hard. The hard shell on it. Already. And it's like hundreds and hundreds of fruits in one um, bunch, I suppose. In one bunch, yeah. It, they look like berries, but they're not berries. They look like big grapes. But they're obviously they're. <laughs> they're very hard, aren't they? They're very hard, yeah. And just the scene here, the, the lads are collecting them with a uh, horse and cart. A horse and cart, yeah. Like any internationally traded commodity, palm oil is subject to a fluctuating market. Uh, the price of, of what they get for, the, they get about $100 for a tonne. And the price has steadily gone down over the last few months. And I think in just two months, I think it went down from 2,800 limpiras, which is about $140, to $100 in the space of two months. For a ton, and they would the amount that they would be able to take out or to cultivate or, or and to bring to the processing plant on a daily basis or whenever they come to harvest would be three loads of four tons. So you're talking about uh, 12 tons. It's a small area of land. It's only 45 hectares. Um, among all of the families, it's not enough. They, they need to also sow staple grains for their own food consumption. Ya los han sembrado o lo van a hacer? They've already sowed uh, basic grains for their own food consumption because in critical times, African palm, you can't eat it. <laughs> so they need to ensure their food security and the family's food security as well. Aquí estamos como, como que estuviéramos en otro planeta o... <laughs> he said that the life of Campesino in Honduras is very hard. It's like being on another planet. <laughs> a sunny planet, though. A warm planet as well. Well, adios, muchas gracias. On this farm, 100 acres provides 25 families with a reasonably secure income and a certain degree of control over their own destiny. That's what all communities here want. But for those who are struggling to reoccupy land taken from them, the consequences can be violent and deadly. Some of the community movements in the Aguan Valley have managed to gain good title to their land. Some of them are doing well, and for a while, the government of Manuel Zelaya in the mid-2000s had made progress in resolving the conflict. That was until he was taken out of power by a military coup in 2009. Almost immediately, the levels of violence against communities increased. I've come to the community that suffered one of the single most deadly attacks of this land conflict, at El Tumbador in 2010. Adolfo Cruz is one of the community leaders there. When the community went to reclaim and recover those 700 hectares of the creme, the army came and together with the guards, murdered five people in that part of the Tumbador. 
asesinan cinco compañeros en esa área tumbadora. No los asesinan en las plantaciones. They didn't murder them in the plantations. They murdered them on the campesinos' own land, which borders on the area of the African palm plantations. Exactamente, que colindan con esa área, con la plantación de palma africana. Los cinco compañeros que murieron ahí, murieron. The five colleagues who died there were murdered with large caliber weapons, such as R-15s, AK-47s, and M-50s, used by the army. Apart from the five people killed, many others were wounded and terrified when private guards and military fired on them. I went with my colleagues to reclaim the land and was also threatened. But we weren't on the property. We were outside. We hadn't arrived when the shootings were already happening all over the place, across the mountain. And all we wanted to do was throw ourselves to the ground, stay down on the ground. They were shooting nonstop. That was frightening. There were volleys of bullets all around us. A large group of them came towards where we were when we were dropped down to the ground. They surrounded us and they grabbed us. One of them tied our hands. They put their weapons here. One came and he grabbed my hair like this. And he put his weapon on me, said that he was going to kill me. He threatened that he was going to kill me. And all around me they were saying, let's kill them, let's kill them. And they pointed their weapons at us. The men and women I talk to are ordinary farmers trying to feed their families. Francisco was one of the first people shot that day. The scars are obvious when he speaks. I was also one of the people who was affected. I was hit by a bullet in my face. On that day, when those five colleagues died, I was one of the first to be shot in the face by the guards. The bullet entered my right side and exited on the left. Yes, the bullet exited. It took away my dentures and all of my upper gums. There were others that they killed about a kilometer away from their plantation because the order they were given was to kill. The company who occupied the land that the shots were fired from is called Dinant, and they have been central to the conflict in the Iguan Valley. The company's private security guards have been accused of involvement in dozens of killings and human rights violations. They are also the biggest producers and exporters of palm oil in the region, palm oil that ends up in the kitchens and bathrooms of Europe and the US. What's more surprising is that in 2008, the World Bank sanctioned a $30 million loan to Dinant, the company at the centre of much of the land conflict and human rights allegations in the Iguan. It seemed the bank wasn't aware of how things worked when it came to corporate social responsibility in the palm oil business in Honduras. This was in spite of groups like Trocara working to make the international community aware of cases of human rights abuses. Troker's Jennifer Cornally explains. How important do you think that international pressure is brought to bear through organisations like Troker to effect a kind of a change in the attitude 
towards human rights abuses? It's extremely important because as a result of the, the work of organisations on the ground supporting the communities uh, and international organisations like TROCRA providing the support to the local organisations and the communities, um, information was provided to the World Bank, uh, for example, on what's happening uh, in the Iguan and the, and the killings and the human rights violations that have taken place. This led the World Bank to carry out uh, an audit of, um, in relation to the situation on, in the framework of the loan that has been provided to a company in the region, Dinant. It was the World Bank's ombudsman that found they were not complying with their own social impact policies when it came to this $30 million loan. That led uh, the World Bank to postpone the, dis the second disbursement uh, of the loan, the second 15 million of an overall total of 30 million to the, to the company, and um, brought a lot of international attention to the case. In spite of the international attention after the El Tumbador killings, the abuses continued. One strategy used by the powerful in Honduras is to obtain questionable eviction orders to clear lands legally occupied by peasant farmers. That's what happened to the community of Rigores a year later in 2011. OK, well, when an eviction happens, it's supposed to be carried out in a way that is in accordance with humanitarian principles. So um, crops aren't supposed to be destroyed, houses aren't supposed to be destroyed, um, force is not supposed to be used. used. Um, and the government has an obligation after an eviction to ensure that the people are temporarily housed, that they have access to food, that they have access to any medical requirements that they might need and that the children continue to go to school. And normally that is not respected. And in a situation like this um, community here, uh, they would have literally been pushed back out to the road? And out onto the street with nowhere to go because they, they normally what happens is their crops are destroyed either by tractors uh, or other machinery are burnt. Uh, houses could be destroyed or burnt. In this case, they were burnt. Uh, even the school, they destroyed the school. Well, kids coming out of the school and basically terrorising the community to such an extent that, with the hope that they won't go back and occupy the land again. But in their case, they don't really have any option, do they? They don't have any other option because the land was idle. It wasn't, in, it wasn't being used by the landowner. And according to Honduran law, if land is idle for a certain amount of time, um, landless uh, peasant farmers have the right to occupy the land and after a certain number of time on the land, a number of years on the land, it becomes theirs and they can, and they can um, obtain the legal title. Um, the other issue in, in relation to this particular case is that there's also a limit on the amount of land that any particular landowner can have in a certain municipality and the, the landowner had exceeded his limit and the land wasn't being cultivated. So these families saw that the land was idle after Hurricane Mitch and they occupied the land uh, to grow basic grains to ensure food security for them and their families. And Troker's response responded here on the number yeah, of occasions. Yeah, Trocra has responded to the evictions of these families and have been supporting as well through the through legal assistance um, to help them to push the case through the courts and to get the titles. Um, I suppose psycho psychosocial support was a part of the support that we, or was an element of the support that we provided in the past to help women and children in particular to cope with the psychological impact of the evictions which were carried out so violently. It's late in the afternoon and the skies are darkening under heavy rain. Before we leave the community of Rigores, I meet Santos Bernabe. He 
He was kidnapped during the eviction of 2011. I was 16 years old at the time. I was going to work when it happened. The bicycle that I had, which was my means of transport to go to work, had a puncture, so I turned around to take it home to repair it. That was when the military came. I was at home, and I remember them arriving, and they said, hands up, everybody outside. Well, everybody went outside, and they turned to me and said, you're staying with us. And they told me to take off my shirt and shoes, and they tied my hands behind my back. They took me down the road and questioned me about things which I knew nothing about. They continued to beat me, hitting me with their helmets. They took me to the cemetery. Again, they beat me. They hit me with their rifles, they beat me with their clubs, and they doused me in gasoline. They said that they were going to set me on fire. There, they threatened me, that they were going to throw me into an open grave. Two years on from the El Tombador killings, the communities of Campesino farmers across the region felt they needed a way to defend themselves against the violence. They did this by setting up an observatory for human rights. It was decided to set, set up the observatory in order to, to monitor what was going on. It's made up of um, representatives of each of the 17 campesino movements and groups um, in the region. And um, the work that they carry out basically is they monitor the situation. They will be present at evictions to... to to capture what's happening, to take photos, to make videos uh, of what's being done by the military or the police uh, during an eviction. They'll document all of that and they'll release that information to the public. Their presence also acts as a deterrent to the military and the police in terms of human rights violations because when they see these people present and who are identified as human rights defenders, where they might be, be tempted to use violence or force, their presence will deter them from using that violence and force. Three years since the observatory was set up, the situation has improved, but as more and more land has been given over to palm oil production, the conflict continues. One of the communities where the observatory has been busy in recent months is La Panama, a community literally surrounded by the palm oil plantations owned by Dinant whom the community believe wants to evict them from the homes they've lived in for up to 40 years and have legal title to. One of the community leaders tells me where they feel constantly under threat. They are always threatening. On the 29th of last month, the military were here, and when I went to close the door, they threatened me that they were going to kill me if we went to their land. I told them, I am on my property, I'm not on your land. For you to enter here, you need to bring me a court order. You can only be over there. That's when he said, I am going to beat you. Another member of this community is Idalia. She's in her early 20s and has chosen to become a member of the Human Rights Observatory for this area. The people of the community of Panama have seen many violations. We have seen bloodshed. We have been threatened. As women, 
We can't walk the streets alone from five in the afternoon onwards. Because, for instance, one member of the community who is mentally ill, the guards grabbed her. They took her to the palms and they violated her. She tells me what she saw happen only weeks before, on the 3rd of July 2014. Yes, the last time they followed the people up here, they surrounded us, they surrounded the whole community. Almost all the community were at the football pitch, and because they were already inside, we didn't think the guards would follow people into the community. But they surrounded us, and when they didn't have any more tear gas, they opened fire with weapons. Two people were hit. One of those who was shot that day is Jose Sanchez. He lifts his T-shirt to show us his bullet wounds. I was in front of, there in the field. I was standing still. The military were in front of me, and then I suddenly felt a shot. I saw the blood, and I said, they've killed me. I ran onto a porch of a house, and I fell down there. Then my friends came and picked me up. This was an opportunity for the human rights observers to photograph and record the incident. But as Adalia explains, they became the targets themselves. As human rights defenders, we were wearing our vests to observe. We saw our colleagues were being threatened with weapons put to their chests. When the guards saw us, we were looking on. We thought they could not risk exposing themselves to us. They first lowered their weapons, but then... They just opened fire. When everyone ran away, they grabbed us. They took our vests, destroyed them. They took our phones, cameras, and they beat us. The effectiveness of a human rights observatory that is not allowed to function is obvious but it has helped to gain attention internationally. And that's led to the setting up of a special investigation unit by the Honduran government. I'm taken to their offices to meet the unit's leader, Javier Guzman. He's declined to be interviewed for broadcast, but tells me about the background to the setting up of the unit. In the course of the conversation, he says they have begun exhuming bodies and they have spoken to the military and private security guards, but says that it won't be possible for the unit to speak to the business owners directly because they are never here. And as I leave the offices, I'm struck by the fact that there isn't a single piece of paper, poster, book, filing cabinet, wall planner, anywhere to be seen. Just a large series of relatively empty offices. Outside, Troker's country director here, Jennifer Cornelli, puts things a little more in context. The verbal commitment that the government has given is to investigating the crimes and to making sure that the, those who were responsible for the, the killings that have occurred here in the region would be brought to justice. More than that, we, we, we don't know uh, for the moment, but um, in general in, in Honduras, 
impunity levels are very high, the justice system is quite corrupt, um, people can be bought off quite easily or threatened um, you know, to, to side with or not to provide information in relation to, to different cases. So it's quite a challenge that's ahead of us and um, the work of the observatory is key to ensuring that the, the issue remains on the agenda, on the political agenda, because there is very few um, sources of information within the country and they're controlled in general by the traditional elite, those uh, uh, media outlets. It's important that alternative information from the grassroots level is also available to people so that they can make an, um, an informed analysis and judgment on what's happening in the region and it also contributes to protecting the human rights of the people uh, involved in the movements because uh, there's more vigilance and observance of, of their actions and that is a measure to ensure that they curtail on the use of force. turns out the resolution of the Honduran land conflict lies in part at least beyond the country's borders. Investors and consumers are having a growing influence on the ethical production of palm oil. Back in the US, Lucia von Rusner's investment fund Green Century has scored a big success with Kellogg. I am the shareholder advocate at Green Century Capital Management, which is an environmentally responsible investment firm that offers individuals with environmentally responsible long-term investment options. And we have a robust shareholder advocacy program where we leverage our shareholder stake in the companies that we invest to encourage more environmentally responsible business practices. Kellogg is one of the companies that we invest in. It is a major food company that uses palm oil in the majority of its private branded products. And palm oil is the most widely used vegetable oil in the world. And this issue and this ingredient has become a huge risk for investors because consumers are increasingly concerned about how their food is being produced. So we saw that Kellogg was using palm oil in a lot of its ingredients, but did not have policies in place to make sure that the palm oil was coming from sustainable sources. Kellogg ultimately agreed to make sure that its entire palm oil supply chain would not be linked to deforestation, development on peatlands, or human rights abuses. And Public awareness has really grown in the past few years about the impacts that palm oil development has on issues like human rights, climate change, biodiversity loss, and consumers have really been pushing companies to take action on this issue and make sure their palm oil comes from sustainable sources. And ultimately, companies have to respond to what their consumer wants. And if consumers are demanding that products are produced in an ethical way, then they have to provide those kind of products. And as investors, we want to make sure that companies are being responsive to their consumers and addressing those risks. So we've seen companies become extremely responsive and just recognize it's an issue they have to deal with and take action on. Back in Honduras, while the issue of justice for the 123 people killed and six disappeared is still far from being addressed, this conflict is about land, palm oil and money. And there are examples of farmers' cooperatives that have managed to secure their land and develop successful and ethical palm oil businesses. One of these is the Salama Co-op. It's a cooperative that's made up of a, a number of um, peasant families and um, it processes African palm oil 
here and many um, farmers and small groups of uh, farmers movements bring their um, African palm fruit to this cooperative to have it processed and to get a relatively fair price for the product. So we're just going to take a tour around now to understand a little bit of how it works and, uh, and how the oil is actually processed. It's a bit like touring a sugar beet factory. Lots of steam, a sweet fruity smell and dozens of workers kept busy producing palm oil for the world market. It smells like food here. It smells like food, like something's being fried. <laughs> well, I suppose it is. It's it is. Food. The crude palm oil. So here we have all the fruit over here. Stocked up, been waiting to be processed, going in that side and coming out the other side. A cocinar de los esterizadores. For uh, los ester, steril, uh, esterilizadores. esterilizadores okay. So it's taken from here where you see it being stored there on the ground through in, in little carts to be sterilized, to pass through sterilizers. The, the wastage is actually used as fuel because it's the kind of fiber part of the fruit um, that remains after the oil has been squeezed out. And they use it as fuel to generate their, um, the steamers. And they sell some of it as well to other steamers in San Pedro Sula. They process about 560 tonnes of fruit a day. And the oil is about uh, 200... Ah. Oil produced... The oil produced in a day would be about 128 tonnes a day. With this plant processing $50,000 worth of palm in a single day, there could be a good living for everyone from palm oil in the Aguan Valley. It's uh, turned into a very successful cooperative. They have about, or the work that they do benefits about 400, 500 uh, campesino families living in and around the area through different projects that they're working on. It's an example of of an alternative model to the big business uh, agro-industry uh, where it's owned and run by the people themselves and they have a fair share in the profits and uh, they've managed to expand and buy more land and implement more projects in different areas not just in African Palm and provide employment to a total of around 500 families. As we're leaving the co-op the manager tells us that a small loan from Trokera help them to come up with a proper business plan to keep things going. So the key issue is, in, in terms of sustainability, is that the, there has to be security of tenure in the land titling process and, um, and no doubts are around that that could lead to a dispute then with other landowners. There are a number of large landowners in the region and what sometimes happens is that uh, all of a sudden a dispute crops up over a, a piece of land that is claimed to be owned by, by two different people, by a landowner by, by a campesino group at the same time. International pressure from the likes of Trokera and the World Bank is having an effect on the situation on the ground. So far this year, nobody has been killed for palm oil in the Aguan Valley. While improvements are being made on a local level, it's the international response from investors and consumers that will ultimately influence the ethical production of palm oil. The concept of ethical consumption is gaining momentum across the world, 
driven by campaigners like Laurel Sutherland. Rainforest Action Network has dubbed the term conflict palm oil to make a distinction between palm oil that is produced in a manner that contributes to human rights abuses, rainforest destruction, and uh, carbon pollution into the atmosphere. Uh, palm oil that's, that's produced in that manner we, we, we call conflict palm oil. Uh, that's opposed to responsible palm oil, um, which is possible to be produced in a manner that, that doesn't involve uh, deforestation, doesn't involve displacing communities, doesn't involve child or forced labor, both of which are commonplace on palm oil plantations, um, and doesn't involve the development of peatlands, which, uh, which, which involves massive pollution into the atmosphere. The level of campaigning in the U.S. directed at food production companies is creating an effect that runs all the way up the supply chain. At this point, Rainforest Action Network is demanding that companies do the hard work of engaging with their supply chains, taking responsibility for the consequences of the ingredients that they're using, and actually uh, get to know their suppliers and um, get third-party verification of, of, of the activities of their suppliers and then be prepared to eliminate uh, and stop doing business with suppliers that, that, that refuse to comply with responsible standards. When consumers have a choice, they will make a choice. And increasingly, big companies are listening. Well, Rainforest Action Network runs market-based campaigns where we uh, target large corporations um, and um, basically leverage uh, public opinion and their customers to create a level of controversy that pressures them into sitting down at the table and negotiating with us and doing the right thing by passing binding time-bound policies that commit them to, you know, rooting out social and, and environmental abuses from their supply chain. So a big part of that is, you know, these companies invest millions of dollars in their brand um, and they're very sensitive to having their brand associated with things like species extinction and child labor. So a big part of what we do is, you know, basically threaten them with reputational risk and, and threaten them with a level of controversy that they don't want to be associated with. And, you know, we are, we are more than willing at any point to sit down and work with companies to help them resolve these issues. And so uh, before before we began, you know, a year and a half ago, we launched uh, a campaign uh, against a group of companies we called the Snack Food 20. Uh, and these are massive global snack food companies, uh, you know, household names, including Pepsi and Kraft and Kellogg's and General Mills uh, and, and many others. And before we started naming names uh, and going public, um, targeting these companies, we sent them letters and contacted them and told them, look, this is the problem you have in your supply chain. These are This is our demands about what you need to do about it and we're going to give you a chance to, to do the right thing and uh, before we you know come at you publicly and we had a, a you know very uh, broad spectrum of responses some companies uh, were leaders like Nestle and others who came to us and said look we know this is a problem we know we've got to address it and we're willing to sit down and work with you to do so other companies said yeah we know this is a problem but we got it covered we're going to use the RSPO don't worry about it uh, and then other companies uh, beyond them just you know, refuse to engage with us whatsoever. So um, we came out uh, last September 2013 uh, and named the names of these 20 companies and started campaigning on them directly. Uh, and in the last year, we have seen major movement from, uh, at this point, 10 of the 20 companies have made uh, substantial commitments publicly. Um, it's too soon to say, um, you know, how effective these policies are going to be. Um, many of them look good on paper, and many of these companies 
companies seem earnest in their attempts to to you know solve this this problem, but uh, it's just too soon to tell the impact on the ground. You know, it, what, what what really matters is uh, our human rights being preserved and have the bulldozers stopped cutting down forests. We're watching very closely um, as these companies begin to implement their policies, and you know we'll be holding them accountable all the way. I started my journey at the Climate March in New York, where the global voice was being heard. As I leave Honduras, an Independence Day march is passing by. It seems we could all have a part to play in a sustainable, ethical and independent living for the palm oil farmers of the Agawan Valley.